Okay, now let me, let me set the stage for what we're getting ready, get ready to do. So uh, for the next uh, few weeks, we're gonna talk about armor. Um, living a life prepared. Now, I know your outline is a little interesting this morning, so I, I really don't know what happened there, but um, um, it, it's probably the way I formatted it when I, when I emailed it in. I'll, I'll do better next week, okay? So, um, it, uh, you don't think I will? I'll try, Ellie. Well, Paul will do a lot better. You know that, so that's right. Now, um, so the next time, should I say it that way? So I've, I've come to a realization. Probably, I'm never going to be a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl, probably. But the truth is, Dallas may never have a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl either. <laughs> right? I hate to admit that. <laughs> I'm watching the Olympics, and I realize that over, I'm realizing last night as I'm watching the Olympics that I will probably never win a gold medal in the Olympics, even though I did slide on the ice a couple of times this week. But that was by accident. <laughs> yeah, they all are. <laughs> but I did decide I was going to do something. So I've got I've got a young friend. He's I think. In his late 40s, maybe, um, late 30s, maybe early 40s, he's got four little kids at home. And he decided six months ago, so he's been on leave of absence from uh, employment at the university. And he, where we, every time we think he's coming back, he's got to go do something else, and then he's coming back. Uh, because he joined the reserves. He's just young enough. He, like, he, like he joined up in his last year of eligibility to be able to join up in, uh, in I think he's in the Air Force Reserves. And I've kind of been following, you know, he went through basic and then he went through some kind of tech training and then some more tech training and we miss him at our place. But I think, kind of what a cool thing. So I want you to know that inspired by Michael's tenacity, I have joined the Army. Don't look so funny at me and think you're way too old and way too fat to be in the army, okay? But I have joined the army of God. I'm, I'm in. There are a lot of metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses for the church. Um, I once heard a, a great Kentucky orator uh, preach a sermon that I had a tape of. Now, I've probably still got the tape, but don't have a tape player, you know? Um, but he did, he did a sermon called The Old Ship of Zion, right? I remember Willard Wilcox. Um, the Old Ship of Zion. And it was just it, beautiful uh, the way he, he spun that metaphor. Now, the ship is not all that much of a metaphor, but it's kind of hinted at. Um, the family of God is in there, right? Um, and certainly, uh, the body of Christ, that metaphor is in Paul's teaching. We're going to, over the next several weeks, talk about um, the army of God and putting on the armor of the Lord. Now, somewhere in this building, I've ne I've never I haven't found out where it is, but I'm going to go look for it today. Uh, there is a full set of Roman armors. Anybody found it yet? Yeah. Where is it? It's in the atrium. Oh, it's in the atrium. Okay. I, I just walked kind of through there and came up the stairs. So, so, Ellen, you saw it this morning. All right, I want to go see that because it's, it's kind of authentic. Uh, it's probably not first century, but it's authentic. 
and um, <laughs> kind of look over this and think, okay, there's that piece and there's that piece that we're going to talk about and whatever. I, I asked Bill Search if he would put it on and wear it to class someday. I don't know if he's going to do that or not. <laughs> but it would be fun if he did. Anyway, so let's do some background. Um, scholars have looked at the Apostle Paul's work for two centuries for uh, two millennia now, you know. Um, uh, it may be safe to say <coughs> that other than the Gospels, no other writer, Christian or non-Christian, has been as widely read or as influential as the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Um, and uh, you and I, get to sit down on a daily basis and read that. Um, I, I realized last night how little I know, I, I know this, how little I know about geography. And I especially knew it last night because I had dinner with a kid from Italy. I know kind of where Italy is. But the other kid was a Serbian. And so he gave us a geography lesson and kind of a po politics lesson on, um, on Serbia and where all that came from and kind of, kind of that area of the country, area of the world. But this that we're going to talk about, Ephesus, is not too far from that. It's over kind of in, in Turkey and Asia Minor. Um, uh, certainly, um, my friend Nico is from, um, from Europe, from Eastern Europe, which, by the way, is in the news every day these days. Um, but I had to realize... Okay, Nico, teach me about where you come from and, and your language. Well, it's Serbian. Okay, sorry. You know, you know. Um, it was interesting. We were, we were eating dinner, and, um, and the waitress came back over and said, this table over here wants to know wh what your accent is, you know, because it's different. You can kind of pick out the other guy's Italian accent because it sounds like what you've heard on the movies, but, uh, but a Serbian accent's a little bit different. Okay, now... Um, Paul was born into a Jewish home, but in a Roman city, Tarsus, which was uh, probably not far from the Mediterranean Sea in, in uh, modern Turkey. Um, we think, well, we know somewhat from reading the book of Acts and other places, that either he learned it at home or, or was apprenticed. We talked about apprenticing. Um, as a leather worker, okay, he did. Uh, he was pretty proud of the fact, in a good way, proud of the fact that he didn't have to have, have support from the churches that he was starting. You know, it wasn't a deal where they took up a collection and said, "Here, Paul, this will this will buy your dinner this week," because he was doing work day after day after day um, as a leather worker. Uh, you've heard it probably in your, um, lifetime. He was a tent maker. So that's kind of the idea. It was back breaking work, but he, as he was doing leather work, he would disciple people, lead people to Christ. And he used every opportunity he could use. Um, is it wrong to say that Paul was before and after meeting Christ. A pretty zealous guy. Was he kind of all in? I think he was all in. You think about it. He was all in before Acts 9 uh, in uh, discouraging, defeating, 
and even uh, helping put to death members of the, of the fledgling church, followers of Jesus. And then after Acts 9, after he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, you could, you could argue that that just poured jet fuel on his ardor, on his, um, on his zeal. And he became even more zealous as a Christ follower than he was as a Christ defeater, or whatever you want to say, before that time. Um, he didn't do anything halfway ever. I'm, I'll just say this. There are days where I get feeling kind of sorry for myself. I know you don't do that, but I do. Okay? And I'll look at an 80-hour 80, 80 week and think, you know, when is a guy going to ever get a break? I'm an old man. When do, when do I get a break? And I'll, I'll worry about um, things I shouldn't worry about, you know. I can't get this done, I can't get this done, because i got to get this done, i got to get this done, i got to get this done. And then I realize, I don't know that Paul ever worried about having a day off. Do you? I don't think he ever worried about having a day off. I think, I think he was way, and I'll read books and read articles on how to put your life in balance. And I realized the Apostle Paul was probably the most imbalanced guy you've ever known. <clears throat> he, had, he had one note that he played every day, and he played it really, really well. So uh, his work was reaching Gentiles for Christ. Um, he considered himself an abnormally born apostle. Since he wasn't one who got to hang out with Jesus in those 33 years, um, he, wasn't, he didn't get to listen to any of Jesus' sermons directly during his um, earthly ministry, but he had a supernatural meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read about it in, in Acts 8 and 9 and then was discipled by some other people farther down the road. We don't hear a lot about this, but you can read it about it. He took eight years to train before he began to speak and began to tell his story. And it was the great encourager Barnabas who went looking for him and said, I need your help over here in Antioch, and took him with him. And uh, that would be the first of his three missionary journeys. Now, um, Ephesians, we think, is probably a circular letter. Now, there's, what that means is there's no, um, there's no direct references to, um, to uh, people in the Ephesians church and that kind of thing. So we think it probably was written to a region, but kind of directed to the Ephesian church. Uh, the Ephesian church was the great discipling church of the New Testament age. Um, it's interesting um, Paul had a lot of affection for this place. One reason, because um, of its pastor. Pastor was Timothy. And you know about his relationship with Timothy from, from the, the books that he read, the, le uh, the, the letters that he wrote to Timothy. So we think at least that Timothy might have been the pastor of the great Ephesian discipling church. Um, it was written, we think, about 62 A.D., while uh, he was imprisoned in Rome. Um, Jesus had been gone by this time for 30 years. Think about it in those... those. Isn't it interesting? Um, is it more incredible for you to think that people were still talking and developing thoughts about Jesus 30 years after his death? Or is it more incredible for you to think we're still talking about it 2,000 years later? 
Because we really are. I'm still reading about him every day. How about you? Okay? That's a pretty neat thing. That the greatest subject ever. Well, 30 years after his death, Paul is kind of developing these thoughts. Now, Ephesus, I said, was in kind of where modern-day Turkey is, somewhere in that region. Um, the great uh, economic center of, of um, um, Ephesus was the worship of Artemis, also known as Diana. Um, there was a temple erected there in her honor that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, therefore, became a tourist destination. It was, uh, it was uh, very influential in the Roman Empire. So the problem that exists then in this region, and certainly then during this period of time, is with the Romans in control of, of most of the world, and certainly that part of the world. They were really okay with whoever you wanted to worship. After all, if you were looking for a god, they could find you 12. Okay? They were just not real happy with you worshiping one god. Now, they let the Jews get away with it. But Christians, it was another thing. So uh, that's what gets Paul in trouble. That's what angered the Romans, that Christians worship the one true God exclusively. Uh, you can read about this in Acts 19, where Paul starts the church there and is imprisoned there. He uh, or he gets kind of run out of town there. He stays about two years there getting the... the uh, church established. Um, anyway, Paul and the others that he worked with considered the Roman gods fiction at best, mythical. Okay, Don't get overly interested in mythology. He considered them to be fictional at best, demonic at their worst. And so he addresses that and gets him kind of in trouble. Didn't make people in Ephesus happy. This was the source of their uh, income. And, uh, you know, they were, they were every day printing Artemis T-shirts that they were selling on the corner. If you find one of those, buy it. You know, if you don't pay more than a couple bucks for it, uh, Marlene may have one in her booth. But, but uh, it's probably worth it. Okay. Now, now he's going to employ this metaphor of spiritual battle, okay? And that's what we're going to talk about for these weeks. I really encourage you to go down and look at this Roman suit of armor. I'm going to do that after church today. I kind of want to think, okay, so there's that, okay? And we'll talk about uh, a lot of that. We go. Um, Tony Evans has said, if you, all you see is what you see, you'll never see all there is to be seen. Can I say that again? If all you see is what you see, You'll never see all that there is to be seen. Uh, the idea here is that Paul is going to say we're in a spiritual battle. And it's not surprising to me that he developed this metaphor and this thought about spiritual battle and spiritual armor probably while chained to a Roman soldier of some kind. Uh, by the way, they would change the guard occasionally. He'd lead this one to faith. They'd unchain him from that one and chain him to another one. He'd lead that one to faith and disciple him until he got another one. So he was looking at a guy in full dress military garb probably most of the time. So it's not uh, surprising here that he says this. Now, um, 
as I read this, and even as I read Acts 19, trying to get some background on how the Ephesian church started, what I realize is that they were really convinced of spiritual warfare going on that they couldn't see. Paul was very convinced of it. The Ephesians were convinced of it. Why? Because they were living in it day after day, certainly with these people who worshipped other gods. Now, did you ever read back in the 1990s of the, the book, um, or maybe it was in the 80s, um, the uh, book, uh, This Present Darkness? Yes. Anybody ever get into that stuff? It, there were two or three, I think, in the series, and I read at least a couple of them. And it made me aware, probably more aware, of uh, the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. I'm not sure I believe everything that was placed in those books, but it did make me aware that there are probably battles going on for my soul that I will never see, and I need to recognize that I am in war, that I need to be, uh, Frank. Per I was trying to think, Frank Peretti wrote those books. I couldn't think of it for a second. Um, so there is another world out there where demons dwell, where... Um, um, Angels and demons are at war. It's kind of that idea. The, um, Larry Richards says, the difference between the beliefs of many people today and the beliefs of first century Ephesians lies in the fact that first century men and women feared the spirits. You and I kind of think of the devil in a you know, red union so suit with a pointed tail and a pitchfork. And as long as we think of him that way, he's pretty safe. But he's not safe. Cindy? I just wanted to say some, make a point. If anybody watches TV at all, there's a lot of demonic stuff on TV that makes Satan look like a good guy, and that's just yeah. yeah. It, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the point um, in, in a minute that that there are some mistakes that we can make make in viewing Satan, and one of them is just to view him as being kind of benign and you know not to be worried about. Uh, you can either Talk to him or talk to God, right? So that's kind of the background of this thing. And uh, we're going to get into it a little bit. Steve promises me that he's warmed up. But I'm going to have him read the whole lesson, which is only four verses today. But let's start with Ephesians 6 and read 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So, do you like real books? You know, ones that you can turn pages to and even write in, and, you know, that have covers and pages. And, and, and this one's kind of yellow inside. It's because it, it was published in 1944. My daughter gave this to me for my birthday. It is um, not an original um, printing. It's probably the eighth or ninth printing according to what I'm booking here. But um, it is an early copy of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. 
It, it has become a valued possession. I'm, I'm reading, I've read, it, read through it a couple times years ago, and now I'm reading through this copy of it, uh, and I'm not writing in this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay, you know. Although there have been times I want to underline something, Dan, but I don't. Um, so this is the lead up to, um, to screw tape letters. So if you've never heard of it, it is a demon, so one of the devil's minions, an older one writing to his nephew, a fledgling demon. Okay, uh, screw tape is the older. He's writing to Wormwood, his, uh, his nephew, okay? And um, by the way, it's, it's written during World War II, okay? And, and C.S. Lewis is, is British, so that's interesting. Um, so he says this. This is in the lead-up. This is before the letters start coming. I have no intention of explaining how the correspondence which I now offer to the public fell into my hands. There are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall about the devils. Cindy, this goes to your comment. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. By the way, Lewis came to faith as a materialist not believing in any of this stuff. The sort of script which is used in this book can be very easily obtained by anyone who once has learned the knack, but ill-disposed or excitable people who might make a bad use of it shall not learn it from me. So the idea is, he says, we can make two mistakes about thought, about spiritual warfare, about the work of the devil. You can either think that um, he doesn't really exist. That's a real mistake. Or you can kind of think it just doesn't matter. But it does. Brett? 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of the Lord, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There you go. The whole world. 1 John 5, 19. That's really good. Okay, let's think about this for a second. Now, uh, I want to zero in for a few minutes on verse 11 and 12, and then we'll back up to 10. Okay? So... Uh, 11 and 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Sounds like Paul thinks he's real. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So there's an idea here that there is a battle raging. That's what goes in that first blank. There's a battle raging that you and I can't see. Paul says the devil has schemes. When I think of schemes, I think of, you know, um, uh, Wiley Coyote. It's something funny. This is not funny at all uh, when I hear that word scheme. Uh, but the word comes from a Greek word for method. He has methods. By the way, this little book, it just makes me really, it, it makes my, uh, the corners of my mouth turn up occasionally about how he expresses it. Uh, how C.S. Lewis thinks about the devil's methods. All right? By the way, if you're interested, I bet you can find this on YouTube or somewhere. Uh, the best thing ever in the last 20 years or so is there is a recording of John Cleese reading this. 
okay? Which, can you imagine the cynicism that comes between the lines with John Cleese reading this? If you don't know who John Cleese is, he's one of the original Monty Python members. And uh, so, so the idea here is um, it conveys here, if there is a scheme, the idea here, there is a strategy. I wrote in my notes, the devil is working on, working on you. Catch that? The devil is working on, working on you. He can't read your mind, but he might read your mail. He, he doesn't know your thoughts, but he knows what you just sent in an email. Okay? He has access to that stuff. He's not omnipresent and omniscient as God is, but he can watch you work. And so he's at work on you, methodically. That ought to send a chill up your spine, according to the scripture. So, um, so a question what are some methods that he uses? Strife. Pride. Strife. Strife, sorry. When I go through something hard, I'm tempted to think, well, maybe it's time to give up, or maybe there's no God at all. Okay, what are some methods he uses? Anger. Bitterness. Bitterness. Deception. Deception. He certainly uses deception. By the way, Jesus is going to say... Uh, in case you don't know, he's a liar. And the father of all lies. And he's the father of all lies. And he, he called out some other liars, but he said, your dad is the devil. Okay? Run, the, one of the kids we were at dinner with last night has a phrase that he, and you've probably heard me say this, but I've never <coughs> been with Henry that he doesn't say at some point. Now, remember, English is his second language, not his first language. And he will say, I'm not going to lie. But, he wants me to take him seriously. <laughs> the devil would say to you, I am going to lie. But he doesn't want you to know that, Wayne. To tell you the truth. Yeah, to tell you the truth. That's Indra's way of saying to tell you the truth. But the devil is going to lie to you. All right? Now, so, Brad, 1 Peter 5.8 will add to what you read a minute ago. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Change that last word to eat. He's looking for somebody to eat up. All right? Now, um, the idea here is that the devil has had 20 centuries to perfect his technique. He's even had, what, 80 years since this was written? to perfect his te technique, even though C.S. Lewis calls him out on it very well. <clears throat> I better stay alert and watch out. So, second reality. First one is, we're in a battle, we may or may not see it. So one of the things, if we don't accomplish anything else today, is to help you realize you are in a battle. Second, as Christians, we don't rely on our own strength, but on God's strength. We've got to mind this a little bit. The idea is, we don't rely on our own strength, 
but on God's strength. This is kind of a key truth here. So let's back up to verse 10. John, can you read verse 10 out loud for us? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the idea here is we're often tempted to go it alone and think I'm in a battle. I've got to win the battle. Uh, by the way, uh, um, Laura, one of the reasons I misheard you a while ago is I'm thinking about it. my pride often helps, helps me along there. I'm thinking, I've got to fix this. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma, by the way. I've been reading a book, uh, another book my daughter gives. She always gives me books. I love that. Um, on the Dust Bowl, and I'm recognizing, no wonder we in Oklahoma are such pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootsteps people. It's because where we came from, you know. Um, um, Walter, people that grew up in, in Lexington and Purcell are just that kind of people. You know that. If it needs to be fixed, I've got to fix it. That was kind of my dad's philosophy. Like, Janet, you grew up where? Tulsa. Tulsa, okay. Even in Tulsa. Drumright. Definitely in Drumright. <laughs> Paola and Paul's Valley. I mean, I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> We're used to thinking, I've got to fix this. But when Paul writes, be strong, he doesn't mean for you to go to the gym and work out. That's not going to fix anything. <laughs> he is saying here that our, um, our vulnerability here is for us to receive God's strength, not to work on our own. It's his battle, not ours. We don't become strong, but God lends us his strength. In fact, did not Paul say, it is when I'm the weakest that I become strong. Okay? Now, so it's not that we are strong, but the word begins with uh, the, 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 word of verse, the first word of verse 10. Finally, be strong. The idea is to, um, to borrow from the strength the Lord gives us. Uh, Rhonda, jump over to Isaiah 41.10. Can you find that pretty quick? We'll come back to it in just a second. Um, a, a, a beautiful promise. Brad, I'm going to have you go over to 1 John 4.4. 4. Can you do that? You're, you found 1 John a while ago. You can find him again. 1 John 4.4. 4. Okay. Now, the idea here is that God promised, Jesus promised that he would be with us. And we could appropriate and use his strength. I don't have to be strong on my own. Rhonda, read Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Whose strength? Not mine. Mine's going to fail every time. Okay. Uh, back to verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, what does John say, Brad? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What a great promise, you know. Jesus is greater than anyone or anything or any situation, any frustration. 
So my faith is not to be in me, not even in the armor, catch that, but in God, in the Lord Jesus, in his strength. It's his armor that he wants me to kind of be able to use. So, third reality. We don't have to win the battle, but we're called to persevere through the power of God. Now, I I, I want us to look again through this. Um, As I read it, I want you to count the number of times you hear the word stand. Okay, I'm going to begin with verse 10 again. Here we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then the next verse starts with another stand. How many times do you count? Two so far. Okay. I think there's three in some translations. Okay. But the idea is here, um, uh, uh, the idea here is um, you and I are called to stand, to take a stand, to persevere, to hang in there, not to win. Who wins? It's his battle. I'm just called to be a soldier in the army and to take a stand. And at the end of it all, he says in verse 13, after you've done everything, to stand. Put on the full armor, not just parts of it. Okay. So um, Ian, Ian Duguid writes this. The choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier. There's that phrase, Joe, honorable Christian soldier. The choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier or a civilian, but whether you'll be a prepared one or an unprepared one. That's pretty good. When Paul writes about the full armor of God, his readers would have automatically pictured the Roman soldier. They've seen him in the street somewhere in the empire probably in their own city. Certainly the Ephesians would. Um, They would have been startled to think of themselves as fierce Roman soldiers. So, have you enlisted? Okay, there's a couple of questions we can ask about this. So, it's not whether... Or not, you're in the army if you're a Christian. If you're in, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, you are in God's army. That's kind of what Paul's thought is here. So, are you ready for that? <clears throat> are you prepared for that? Um, I, I thought of your passage um, when you were reading your passage a little bit ago. What was it again? First John five nineteen. Five nineteen. Here's James four seven. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now. But you'll get tired. Yeah. Four hour a day battle for the rest of your life. But it's his battle. He's the one who's going to win. By the way, I read the end of the book. He's going to win. He wins. I want to be on that team, you know. Um, 
So James says resist. <clears throat> Two words. Bill search for these in my notes. This is good. Two words. When you feel that battle raging up here where you can't see it, but you know it. Strife has come. You feel it. A good answer to the devil is not today. No, I love it too. Not today. Let me give you a story from my life. And I, I tell this, I may have told it in here before, but I'll tell it again simply that a lot of it has to do with what Ron and I have been through the last month. Uh, 19, I'm sorry, 2003, 2003, um, last day of September, my dad drew his last breath um, in my home, um, best man I've ever known. And I was at his bedside reading scriptures to him when he died about who he is. Dad, this is talking about you. Now, he wasn't talking to me. He was leaving. But I wanted him to know what I thought of him. Next morning, everybody was out of the house for some reason. And I was doing some thoughts on kind of getting ready for his service and what are we going to do about this, what are we going to do about this, and those things. And I was in the study in the home where we were living at the time, which was on the second floor of this house. <laughs> and I'm kind of talking to myself and talking out loud, talking to God, talking to Dad. And I hear it. I feel a chill up my neck. You think he's alive, don't you? I, I've never felt that more strongly than I did in that moment. Yes, I knew he was alive. But, I, but the enemy of my soul, the one who schemes, the one who has methods, knew, Laura, that he needed to take this awful moment in my life. I'm 47 years old and suddenly an orphan with no brothers and sisters. I felt very alone despite this good girl over here and my two kids. And so the devil knew where I was vulnerable and he just said, so you think you're going to see him again, don't you? And it caught me <coughs> Doubting for an instant. And I shouted out loud, not today. Nope. You're not getting to me today. I know. I know. So do you know? Do you know? He will use a lack of assurance in your life to discourage you. He will use that, that needling thing of, you know, what you really sold out to isn't worth anything. Because look where it's landed. You can't really count on him. Not today, Satan. Not today. Will you follow me 
with me in this journey of faith. This is going to be good for me, you know. I'm working with younger men who, who are in awful battles every day, and they don't see it the way you and I just studied it. And I've got to be able to convey that. Uh, this is not just you going through this. This is um, the Lord Jesus' battle. He wants to be able to help you, and there's an enemy who's trying to unravel you. Go through this with me, will you? Help me as I kind of coach us all through what we're talking about here. And then uh, it'll fit just perfectly next week with me being out of town. Paul talking about diligence. And Any scriptures we need to read in particular, Brother Paul? Okay. All right. God bless you. It's sure good to see you. Laura? You started that verse, I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against that day. That's from 1 Timothy, and I've forgotten which chapter. But yeah, bless you.